I'm John Hansen here on a sunny Saturday afternoon. I hope you're having a great long weekend. And uh, thanks for giving us part of your day today. We'll take you up to Northwestern football at 2 o'clock. I love this question. I'm like giddy about it. I love a good history question. And uh, this one's interesting. One of the most famous laws in U.S. history was only in effect for 12 years. It directly impacted tens of millions of people, maybe indirectly hundreds of millions. And the basics of it were first written down on a napkin 250 miles from where I sit right now. We go to Sean on line one, our first uh, guest of the day. And Sean, welcome to the program. Well, thanks. And uh, what's your guess? I'm going to go Prohibition. Prohibition, in effect, from 1920 to 1933, just over 12 years. I guess that did impact millions of people, but I don't know about its basics first being written down on a napkin 250 miles from where I'm sitting right now. (laughs) Though, I will say, the temperance movement did start mostly in the Midwest. Sean, that is a great guess. It's almost there. It's just not, not what I'm looking for today, Sean. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Thanks a lot. That's good. And I specifically wrote the question to make people think it was prohibition. So, Sean, you're uh, you're falling for the trap that I set myself. Let's go to Patrick on line three. Good afternoon, Patrick. Good afternoon. How are you doing, my friend? I am doing very well. How are you, sir? I'm doing good. Better now that I'm chatting with you. What's your guess? The assault weapons ban. The assault weapons ban that was in effect from the 90s, and it was uh, allowed to expire, I believe, under the Bush administration, probably right around that 12-year length, and certainly that impacted people. Just not the answer to the question of the day. I'm sorry, Patrick. It's okay. Have a great day. Yeah, you too, too. Let's go to Beth. Hey, Beth, you're on WGN. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. What's your guess? Uh, the seatbelt law? Seatbelt law. I think that those are done state by state, and most of them are still in effect. I don't know. I think that Rhode Island still doesn't have a seatbelt law, but I may have just seen that on the West Wing and still attributed to it today, so I don't really remember. It's a great guess, Beth. It's just not the answer. Okay, have a good day. Okay. All right. Ooh, I'm rubbing my hands together already because I'm so excited for this one. If you got any other guesses, we'll have a little more time. 312-981-7200. You got to use your brain a little bit on this one. A law that was not in effect for all that long when you think of the grand scope of our U.S. history. It impacted millions of people and it was written down originally on a napkin 250 miles from where I'm sitting right now. I hope someone gets it before the end of the day because it's a really great and cool story. Okay, we'll chat with Mike Leonard after this on Let's Get Legal. 720 WGN, it's Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. Get to Mike Leonard in just one moment. I know he's going to want to stab at the question of the day today. It's a good one. One of the most famous laws in U.S. history, in effect for only 12 years, directly or indirectly millions of people. And uh, the basics of it were first written down on a napkin 250 miles from where I'm sitting right now. Let's go to Joe. Joe, hey, you're on WGN. Good afternoon. What's your guess? Uh, My guess is the Homestead Act. Lots of Homestead Acts were tried to be passed by uh, different uh, parties for many years. The first one that passed and was signed was by uh, Abraham Lincoln in 1862, granting 1.6 million homesteads, over 270,000 acres of property. Uh, But that law was in effect till 1934. So just a little too long for the question of the day. I'm sorry, Joe. Oh, no problem. Thank you. Good guess, though. Man, people are thinking today. I love this. Let's go to Nancy. Hey, Nancy, you're on WGN. Hello. Happy Saturday. Happy Saturday. I love your spirit and attitude. What do you got for us? 
I was wondering if it was the No Child Left Behind legislation of 2002. 2002, No Child Left Behind, George W. Bush putting it into effect, obviously impacted a lot of people. That expired in 2015 at 13 years. It did impact a lot of people. I don't know if it came on a napkin from Illinois either, but it's a great guess, Nancy, but not the answer. I'm sorry. That's all right. Thank you. Man, everybody is thinking today, though. I love this. I think everyone's looking up laws that have expired, or maybe they just happen to have that in their memory bank. Just haven't got the answer yet. Mike Leonard, I don't know if you know it. You're not going to get to get a guess on it. But I know you always love when we have an educated listener base that is actively participating in the show. Thanks for joining us today, my friend. Absolutely, John. And I think the uh, there's a lot of questions questions for you by the listeners today. I've been getting inquiries all week. They want to know when you put together your your Thanksgiving dinner. Are you the type of guy that likes all the side dishes separate from each other, or do you like everything overlapping? That's that's what I've been getting a lot of this week. You mean like when I scoop it onto the plate? What am I generally doing? Yeah, are you trying to keep that distance between each of the items? Are you trying to like kind of put it all together? I'll tell you what, I definitely put them on the plate with the intention of them having the sanctity of their own space. Uh, but if there's bleed over, I'm not someone that feels like it's been spoiled. In fact, there are some combinations that you find and discover only through air, right? You accidentally taste two sides together and you say, well, hang on, hold on, that's pretty good. So I think I start out as someone that likes them separate, but I'm okay if they all come together in one big uh, spoonful. Okay, because listeners have been asking about that all week. Okay. I'm glad we got that cleared up. I definitely love the bleed over. Yeah. You know, have the bite of the potatoes with a little stuff and cranberries in it. So that, that's where I'm coming down on that issue, well, John. Oh, good. I'm glad. I, I'm glad. It seems like we agree, although you might be a little more intentional with it. Uh, Mike Leonard from Leonard Trial Lawyers, you have a good Thanksgiving? It was very good. Yeah, actually, we're out of town for the one once or twice of my whole life. We're out in California visiting my brother-in-law, so it's been great. Oh, nice weather. Good out there. Totally beautiful. Hot during the day, cool at night. Couldn't be any better. Probably, probably bad back there, huh? No, it's we're at fifty-five today, Mike. So don't feel too bad for us. We're feeling pretty good. Oh, uh, that's 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 solid. That's really solid. Yeah, exactly. Don't worry. We'll make sure it's extra cold when you come back. Um, Mike is uh, a frequent guest Thank on the you. show. And, you know, you're a frequent enough guest that you come on that people started emailing me for questions for you, Mike. And I got a great email from a listener named Jim. And he had a really long uh, paragraph he was talking about. But basically, it comes down to the idea of our justice system favors wealthier people over people without the means because of their ability to mount spirited defenses. And Jim wanted, you know, I think that's a thing that I think, I don't know anyone that disagrees with the idea that obviously if you have money, you're able to maybe build a better defense or you're able to have a team around you that can do more research to to help you out. I don't think anyone would disagree with it. You can let me know if you do in a second, Mike. But he went into deeper questions about how do public defenders work? And I think it's a really interesting topic and something that while we probably won't solve by two o'clock today, it's a conversation I think most people should be having. We should. We can definitely try to solve it. Yeah, it's going to be tough. I mean, number one in terms of the certainly there's perception that people who have more money are treated differently in the in the system in terms of their sentences, how the judge treat them, all the outcomes of the cases, et cetera, et cetera. I agree with that perception. And then there's also the reality that, of course, if you had the ability to fund, you know, in an unlimited fashion, to staff your case with two or three or four attorneys to hire all the investigators you needed to run down every lead, 
and to do all that stuff and, and funds were not an issue, of course, you would you'd probably choose the, the big team, right? Right. And I don't blame people for doing and it, so, right? Yeah, and exactly. And you can't fault them. I think the, the, the issue that it comes to, though, is it is it a fair, equal, and just system? And then that gets into a lot of issues about how defense are funded. And in, in most criminal cases, probably 80%, might even be higher, uh, there is appointed counsel, meaning that the client is found to be indigent, and so the court appoints counsel, and typically that's through a you know state federal defender system or, in the, in the federal cases, through a federal defender system. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to go into that right now, John. Well, we can t- – so here's what I want to know, and I think that we threw certain programs we've seen maybe on TV or in the movies – Public defenders are also often portrayed as bumbling lawyers who don't work anywhere else or they are ineffective in counsel. And I know some public defenders. Some of them actually also have private jobs, right, in private firms, and they seem more than capable to me. So maybe it depends on where you are, but what do you think about someone who gets a public defense? Do they are they often getting effective counsel? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You're often getting great counsel at no cost to them, and they need that because they can't afford counsel. And that's a a constitutional right, not only under the U.S. Constitution, but under the Illinois Constitution. But there is a perception that somehow if you're getting something for free, it must be an inferior defense. And, of course, it's not true. There's, especially in Cook County, you know, probably the largest uh, defender office in the whole state, you know, out of the 102 counties. And you might have excellent representation. Of course, a lot depends upon who the individual attorney is. But underlying all this are some, you know, sort of systemic issues. There's been a chronic issue with underfunding of public defenders offices, not just in Cook County, but throughout the entire state and nationally, so that you're not getting some something sometimes experienced enough counsel. You might have to have an attorney who juggles, you know, 50 or 100 cases. So all those issues, you know, really come down to the purse strength. And, you know, you don't hear, John, a lot of candidates talking on TV who are running for office of let's better fund the public defender's office. No one says that. that? No, no one says that. I think think they would make that that person (laughs) seem like they want, you know, better treatment for criminals. That's how it would be spun. So they don't say it like that. Exactly. And what, what they talk about, if anything, is being tougher on crime. There's this notion that, oh, yeah, you know, everybody deserves a defense, but we really don't as a society put our money where our mouth is because there's no law that, especially in Illinois, that makes the public defender's office be funded on the same footing as the state's attorney's office, for instance. So, you know, number one is just a societal commitment to actually give the resources to those offices. And secondly, the, the actual doing it on a countywide basis and statewide basis to give them the funds that they need. So you don't have situations where an attorney has too many cases or has inadequate supervision or might be thrown into cases that they don't have the experience with. But all this balanced by, you know, the individual attorney. In an individual case, you might get a phenomenal defense from the public defenders or federal defenders office. That's right. just reality. So, uh, Jim also brought up in his email such a great question. I'll forge you the whole thing, Mike, one day, but I or after the show. But he asked about the notion of public defenders being paid a flat rate based on the case and how that really offers uh, public defenders more of an incentive to plea out a case, right? Because you know if you're only making so much, it's, it's human nature. 
you know, <laughs> you know, to limit the number of hours you're going to work on something. And for legitimate reasons, do you think that that's an issue or do, do, are there some places where public defenders get paid based on how many days they work on a case versus the case and client itself? Well, there's there's a lot of discretion for that. So let's just be clear. In Cook County, it's extremely large, robust public defender's office. They're not paid by the case. you okay. know. So they're paid salary. They're salaried employees. They have a caseload just like every other attorney. They're not paid $100 per case. Uh, you know, we are influenced by TV shows like Better Call Saul, where he was, you know, going up to the that's window. That's my producer to just was talking about. Yeah. Hours. Yep. <laughs> but that's true. But that is true in some states and in some counties. So in Illinois, for instance, you have 102 counties. There may be a county that doesn't have a robust, you know, public defender's office. So they might rely exclusively on a combination of appointed counsel, meaning attorneys who are just in private practice. And they may have systems in place like that where you paid a flat rate or a maximum rate per the case. And, of course, that's going to cause people concern and say, does the attorney have the right incentive to put all the hours into the case? And can they legitimately do that if you're getting paid on that basis, which certainly is possible in some counties and certainly in a lot of states across the country? Mm-hmm. All right, Mike, we're just scratching the surface on this. I have a couple more questions. And Andrew, I want Andrew to stay on the line, too. They've got a question about the Elizabeth Holmes case, which I know we wanted to get to, Mike. So we've got plenty more coming up in the second half hour and only two half hours today of Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. Joe and Jessica, hang on the line, too. They've got guesses for the question of the day, all coming up after the news on WGN. When news breaks in Chicago or the world, you'll hear it here, and we'll talk about it here. This is Chicago's very own 720 WGN or download the WGN radio app and stream us live. WGN Radio News is on the air. Good afternoon. I'm Kevin Wells at 1.30. The news is sponsored by Green Tea Services. A plane crash in McHenry County remains under investigation this afternoon. WGN Sports, it's rivalry week in college football. Northwestern hosting Illinois at Ryan Field today in their season finale. The pregame is at 2, kickoff at 2.30. Dave Ennett and Ted Albrecht on the call right here. 720 WGN and WGNRadio.com. Other college football scores back and forth. We go in Columbus, Ohio, undefeated number three Michigan has just taken the lead again over number two Ohio State, twenty four to twenty right now, with about twelve minutes to go in the third quarter. JJ McCarthy having perhaps his best game of the season. He's now got two hundred and fifty yards and three touchdowns. Akron and Northern Illinois into Cal right now. Northern leads six to three. Blackhawks host Winnipeg tomorrow at the UC. Joe Brand's pregame gets us started at five thirty. The faceoff with John Weideman and Kaylee Chelios is at six right here on 720 and WGNRadio.com. Out to the roads we go with WGN traffic. Uh, still a quiet ride for the most part on most of the roads. Kennedy inbound is getting a little bit heavy for this time of day. It's about 45 minutes now from O'Hare. A lot of brake lights between north and downtown. Outbound Kennedy is on time at about 25 minutes. Some brake lights at right after Foster there. Eisenhower's 30 minutes in, 25 outbound. No delays on the Stevenson or the Dan Ryan. Bishop Ford looks good. DuSable Lakeshore Drive. Northbound is getting a little slow from Marquette to Monroe. Give yourself about an extra 10 minutes there. Stop and go between Roosevelt and Chicago. This morning, federal investigators still trying to figure out what caused a deadly plane crash in McHenry County. Deputies say the single-engine plane crashed just after 5 o'clock Friday near the Galt Airport in Wonder Lake. The pilot was killed. 
Taking a look at the COVID risk level in Chicago and suburban Cook County, it's now back up to medium. Health officials then raised it from low yesterday, largely due to an increase in new hospitalization numbers. It comes as the CDC announced the Omicron BQ COVID subvariants are now the dominant in the U.S. They're causing 57% of new infections. This weekend is all about Thanksgiving leftovers, and a new survey is now breaking down each state's favorite right here in Illinois and just about every upper Midwest state. Mashed potatoes coming in at number one, Iowa is the odd one out with corn being their favorite. Indiana, it's deviled eggs. The southeast is all about mac and cheese. Southwest loves the green bean casserole. Let's take a look at the forecast from the WGN Chicago Weather Center. A really nice day today in the city and surrounding areas. It's sunny and a high of 57. A couple wind gusts up to 30 miles per hour. For this evening, it will get a little cloudy. Could see some rain in the overnight hours, a low of 37. For Sunday, it's going to warm up again. Not as warm as it was today, but we'll see highs in the mid-40s and a little bit of wind uh, in the afternoon. Extended outlook by calls out drying out by Monday. Temperatures in the 40s back into the 50s on Tuesday. Right now it's 54 at O'Hare, 55 at Midway, 51 along the lake. Celebrating our 100th year of serving Chicago, I'm Kevin Wells on Chicago's very own 720 WGN. I'm John Williams inviting you to a podcast series on your radar where we will examine current mental health issues. In this episode, we talk about when the stress of everything becomes too much and how it affects us. People want to know that they're not alone. They want to feel validated. They want to feel understood. They want to hear that I can recover from this. I can manage this effectively at some point. On Your Radar is a podcast series produced by WGN Radio and the doctors and clinical staff at Rosecrans. Listen on the podcast page at WGNRadio.com. At American Sale, we're known for having the largest selection of Christmas trees and decor. Stroll through our Christmas forest and choose from hundreds of trees ready to take home. Shop thousands of holiday decor items in our Christmas market. And right now, during our Home for the Holidays sales event, you can save up to 70% and get 0% financing for 60 months. Get great deals on a new hot tub, pool table, trampoline, and more. And always get our lowest price. American Sale, helping you bring the fun home. That's the sound of the ComEd Energy Efficiency Program, saving you money and energy. With rebates on Energy Star appliances, so you can come back to a home full of savings. <laughs> Discover more ways to save at comed.com slash home savings. ComEd, powering lives. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Brian Scudamore, founder and CEO of 1-800-GOT-JUNK, with a very important announcement. Experts and analysts worldwide agree that 2022 will end with a particularly bad JRS, probably the worst ever. JRS. Junk reproductive season. And what exactly happens during JRS? Sarah, junk is capable of reproducing in only a matter of minutes. How many times have you opened a door and been surprised by the amount of junk hiding behind it? Lots of times. Yes. And during junk reproductive season, we receive lots of boxes of new items. And there's no place to put them because all the storage spaces have gone J-E. J-E. Junk exponential. But have no fear. We make junk disappear. All you have to do is point. Get ready for all those new boxes and packages to arrive. Call 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Or visit 1-800-GOT-JUNK.COM. Heard of Uline? You know, the have-it-all-in-stock, ready-to-deliver, shipping and industrial supply specialists. The doing things for you, they're unheard-of company. 
like keeping 35,000 business products in stock in our own warehouses with customer service reps on the line to get you what you need when you need it 24-7-365 every single time. Maybe you heard it here first. Want to hear more? Visit you. All right. Yes, this is Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association on WGN. It's 137. Mike Leonard, our guest today, and we'll chat with him more in a second. I wanted to get one more guest in here for the question of the day. One of the most famous laws in U.S. history, in effect for only 12 years, directly impacted millions of people. And the basics of it, first written down on a napkin 250 miles from where I stand right now. Let's go to Joe. Joe, thanks for holding. What's your guess? I was going to guess Obamacare, but now that I rethink it, I know that's wrong. Oh, okay. I mean, I could see where you're thinking, though, because it was about 12 years ago, but I should note that this right. law is in no longer in effect. So based on how I read it, I don't think I don't think it was a bad guess. Joe, you're going for it. I appreciate it. Uh, all righty. Have a good one. If you got an idea, 312-981-7200. We keep on going with Mike Leonard. In the first half hour, we chatted about the discrepancies or the differences between people who need a defense in court who have maybe bundles of money versus those that don't and the misconceptions of um, public defenders. And, Mike, you mentioned that in federal cases, too, there is a public defense uh, system in place, too, right? Yeah, and I, we we should touch upon that, John, because it's entirely different. So, okay. for instance, in Chicago, you have a federal defender's office, which has about 15 to 20 lawyers, right? Yeah. Um, but there might be charged in this district in Chicago. There might be 750 to 1,000 cases, criminal cases charged each year. So there's no way that those 15 or 20 lawyers could handle that caseload. So we also have what's called a panel system, meaning that other lawyers who are entirely in private practice, not part of that office, are appointed to represent individuals in those cases. So, for instance, me or somebody else who's entirely in private practice, who someone might be willing to pay a lot of money, uh, somebody else can get that same representation for free because we're appointed by the court to represent a defendant who can't afford it in a federal criminal case. Mm, Okay, that makes sense. And how often, I mean, like what percentage of cases end up going that route? Uh, quite quite a bit because, you know, federal court's no different than state court in the sense that there's lots and lots of cases where the defendants are indigent, meaning they can't afford a lawyer to represent them. So I'd say probably 75% of the cases are either handled by a federal defender office or by uh, a privately appointed attorney uh, as part of that system. So a high percentage because we hear about, you know, the federal criminal cases involving lots of money and famous defendants, but that's probably, you know, 10 to 25% of the cases. For sure. I got one more question about this that Jim brought up in this email to me, and Andrew, then we're going to get to you. The idea that uh, we're seeing more public defenders or people who have played that role starting to serve more in the federal judiciary, and uh, that was a point that uh, President Biden uh, is is making when he's he nominated. It's not that other presidents haven't done that as well, but maybe at a higher frequency. Do you, A, think that's a good thing for the federal judiciary system, and then why or why not? Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a phenomenal development. That also is happening slowly, but it's happening. If you think about it, of course you would want federal court judges who are not all from the U.S. Attorney's Office, who are not have solely their background in representing the government, prosecuting defendants. You would want a balance. You'd want people who have experience representing criminal defendants who understand what that's like to defend somebody who look at it from perhaps not such a skewed perspective. 
And, you know, there are judges that who can be very balanced, even though they spent their times as career prosecutors. And unfortunately, there's some that can't. There's that clearly not because they're intentionally doing it, but they certainly um, leave you with the taste that they have a bias in favor of the prosecution just because of their experience and not because of any intention on their behalf. And I may get myself in trouble by just saying that, John. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, you're going to get a phone call afterwards as well. Just, just, hit, just hit ignore on it, okay? I'm going to be on some of the federal court judges' naughty list. Yeah, exactly. That's not a place you want to be. All right, let's pivot here a little bit. And, and Mike, we'll have time in the future to dive deeper into this because, you know, this is a, a real important issue as we examine how our judicial system works and, and how we fit through it. So, Jim, thank you for the email for spurning that conversation. But I do want to talk about this Elizabeth Holmes case. For those that don't know the whole story of it, basically – Back in 2014, Elizabeth Holmes, she was 30 years old. She was on top of the world. She dropped out of Stanford, had a company that uh, had was valued at like $9 billion. They promised that this uh, the few drops of blood, they'd be able to detect cancer and diabetes without the hassle of needles. But then it was all kind of shown to be a fraud. And she was sentenced on Friday to 11 years and three months in prison. And I believe that leads into Andrew's question. Andrew, thanks for holding on. Uh, thanks for joining the program. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. So, yeah, I got a question on, on that Elizabeth Holmes case. And it's like a, to keep with the Thanksgiving theme, I have like a main question and two sides. Okay. So the main question is, <laughs> is, uh, is uh, like, I understand that she got more time actually handed down to her than what the prosecution asked for. And I'm just wondering whether that's actually usual or unusual. My, and then my you, side question. Well, let's yeah, do let's ahead. let's do the main course first, right? Let's let's take one bite at a time. So you hang on there, Andrew. Mike, your answer to that question. Yeah, Jeb, we'll start with the turkey, John. So first of all, um, actually, that's not accurate. The government was asking for a 15-year sentence, 180 months, and the defense lawyers who are representing Ms. Holmes, uh, who's from the Theranos company, they were asking for 18 months. So think of what a difference that was, 15 years versus 18 months. The sentence handed down was in between, but much closer to the government's position. It was 11, mo- 11 years and 18 months. So um, the prosecution actually got less than they asked for in that in that case. Um, and that, does that lead us to a subpart or a side here, John? Well, I, I guess what, to Andrew, uh, to ask just even if, let's say it had been over the amount, is that extremely rare if it had been over the amount? that Do, do judges routinely uh, hand down sentences that are over the, the, the one that they're asking for? Or is that pretty unusual? Well, in terms of you got to look at it from who, who's asking for what. But the government is, of course, uh, always asking for a higher sentence than defense right. counsel, right? And that was true in this case. They're looking for a 15-year sentence. But to but to go below that is very, very typical. You know, right. The question is, as a defense lawyer, is kind of where can we get below that government-suggested sentence? And a lot of it's driven by what we've talked a little bit before, John. It's called the Federal Sentencing Guidelines. And they set this structure oftentimes that call for pretty high sentences. And, you know, then... Even though the even though the judge must consider those guidelines, it's not supposed to be the be all end all. So you typically have the government looking for a sentence that's within the guideline range, which is often extremely high. True in this case, in the Holmes case, and then the defense counsel saying, "Well, no, judge, that's totally inappropriate. There's all these mitigating factors why it should be substantially lower." And in this case, the defense counsel was really going on the low end, saying, "Give her 18 months," which a lot of people thought was sort of shocking. Right. Um, but rarely higher, is that, I guess what I'm asking. 
Oh, yeah. Rarely does the judge go above what the government's recommending. It okay. almost never happens. All right. That would was... have to be something really extraordinary. Okay. That was gravy on the turkey. Let's go back to Andrew for one of the side questions. Andrew? Yeah, I only got one side left on my plate then. So okay. and that side is whether you think 11 years is too much time for, for the crime in question. Interesting. Yeah, because it's mainly a financial one at that, right, Mike? Yeah, it's a really great question. I think it's spurred a lot of debate in the legal community and in the public. Uh, on the one hand, you know, this is one of the most, as the government called the largest crimes in Silicon Valley history. And, you know, committed over a large period of time with a defendant who they alleged had taken a lot of steps over the years to cover it up, raised enormous amounts of money. That's why, you know, the potential sentence was so high. Because in federal court, it's often driven by what is called the loss amount. How much financially is at issue? And so the government was arguing that really there was, it was a $550 million fraud. Okay, So I think from a perception standpoint, I think a lot of the public thought that Holmes would get a much lesser sentence in 11 years. Kind of going back to what you said earlier, John, that there's this perception that if you have money and power, you're treated differently. So... I thought, personally, it was very refreshing that the judge was was able to give her uh, a substantial sentence. But then the question arises, you know, after someone serves four, five, six, eight years, are we really accomplishing anything by continuing to incarcerate them, particularly when they're a defendant who's committed a white-collar crime, is no physical danger to the community? And you got to start asking your question, is, is that too many years? I would say probably it is. Right. But it feels good from a public perspective that, you know, this sentence, and we'll, can we talk about the Chrisley sentence, John, yeah, well, gave the public, I think, the sense that there can be fairness in sentencing, even if the person is someone of means. Don't jump too far ahead of me. i got to take a commercial break. Andrew, first of all, thanks for the call. Uh, and uh, Mike, uh, good answers as always. You mentioned the Chrisley situation. We're going to get to that after a commercial break. In case someone's running out of the car, though, Mike Leonard, where should uh, people should go to LeonardTrialLawyers.com, 312-380-6559. Who should be calling your offices, Mike? John, typically we represent individuals who are charged in federal or criminal cases. We also represent individuals who are plaintiffs, meaning they're suing a company relating to whistleblowing or discrimination, employment related reasons. Okay. And that number 312-380-6559, LeonardTrialLawyers.com. That's L-E-O-N-A-R-D, TrialLawyers.com. More with Mike after this on WGN. 720 WGN. A few more minutes here with Mike Leonard from Leonard Trial Lawyers. And uh, we've been chatting about uh, all sorts of cases and the Case of uh, Todd and Julie Chrisley. They were sentenced to a combined 19 years in prison after being convicted of bank fraud and tax evasion in June. Uh, Todd, 12 years. Julie, 7 years. And, um, yeah, what do you think about this case, Mike? This has been one that's captivated a lot of people. Yeah, very interesting case. First of all, John, I don't know. Have you ever watched the show? I have no idea who these people are. I have no idea who these humans are. Everyone's really into it. I've seen the headlines. I don't know who they are. Yeah, I've, I've watched like one. And so on, on the one hand, I think a heavy sentence just based on, upon the quality or lack there of the programming would probably be appropriate. <laughs> okay. And, you're, and you're, your listeners might disagree with me. I'm probably. But a uh, horrible show, horrible show, John. Um, but in any event, yeah, I think the, again, somewhat surprising but consistent with the Elizabeth Holmes case. Again, you had this case where the perception was that these people who were 
somewhat rich and somewhat famous, at least in the reality TV world, uh, would probably be treated with kids glo- kid gloves by the judge. And again, a very a harsh you know sentencing day for these TV reality stars, you know, 12 years and seven years. So I, what I thought was interesting is I assumed that their, all their fraudulent conduct must have come after the TV show started and after they made all their money. But in fact, uh, apparently had engaged in a $30 million fraud before the show even started mm-hmm. in terms of getting all sorts of loans. So again, I think it's one of those dual things. I think like the home sentence, I think it reassures people and gives them a perception that, hey, even if you have money, even if you have fame, you can be treated, you know, fairly by the judicial system. Is there an, is uh, there, could again, you, you argue, could you argue though, Mike, that because of their fame, and that you can say this about Elizabeth Holmes too, judges felt pressures to, pressure to throw the book at them sentencing wise so that it, to, to number one, combat that perception that we're talking about. And number two, a lot of eyes on the case as a disincentive to other people trying, as, as a deterrence to other people from trying the same thing. Oh, sure. And you, you make a good point, Jenny. You know, one of the goals of sentencing at the federal or state level is deterrence. General deterrence is, you know, what does the sentence say to others who might be, you know, tempted to commit the same crime or to engage in criminal conduct? The idea is that we can have a deterrent effect upon others based upon the harshness of the sentence. I think that, unfortunately, in most instances, the studies have shown there really isn't a great general deterrence effect upon society when one defendant sees what another defendant gets, it doesn't really work in reality like that. But that certainly is one of the goals of sentencing. Do I believe that the judges in both cases were probably influenced by, by the public and the public pressure? Absolutely. You know, they clearly these were highly publicized cases, highly publicized people. Uh, the reality is that if they gave them low sentence, they would probably subject, be subject to a lot of criticism and a lot of scrutiny which makes the job hard and which, which makes sentencing hard. But again, just like a, uh, a case that's non-white collar, we often get in this debate about what is the appropriate number of years, right? Right. And, you know, once you get beyond, again, what people could agree upon would be a reasonable amount of time to incarcerate somebody to fulfill the goals of sentencing, then the question becomes after that, you know, why are we continuing to incarcerate people when it has absolutely no purpose? Right. Well, well they've obviously been punished. It's not we're wasting resources incarcerating people. And we have the same debate, John, even in a gun case or a drug case in federal court as you do a white collar case. You know, what is what's sufficient but not greater than necessary, which is supposed to be the standard. And we got about one minute left, Mike, but when someone goes to federal prison, it's not the same thing as in often state where it's like, ah, eh, they're only gonna serve half of that for good behavior. That's not the case in federal uh, prison, right? No, the general rule of thumb is you serve 85% of that, and then you, you may get a little bit less than that. The thing that's changed a lot in federal court in the last year is legislation that now is going to give credits to people um, based upon their activities within the prison system and other factors. So this 85% rule, which was pretty much the rule of thumb you could rely upon, is now it's going to be less. So probably not any less than about 50%, but certainly less than 85%. Okay. And I think... John, we should close because I've got a lot of questions from viewers. They want to know, are you a leftover guy or not? I, I am. In fact, I took the stuffing or dressing or whatever you want to call it. I mixed it in with some eggs today and some turkey wow. leftovers okay. and kind of made like a scrambled egg, uh, turkey. And I didn't do it early, though. I put like the, the, the dressing in at the end or the stuffing. I forget what which one way I call it. Um 
you know, not to make it too cooked, but just to warm it up within there. And it was really good. So, wow. yum, yum. in addition to all the other stuff you're doing, John Blackhawks, WGN, maybe we have the seeds of a John Hansen cookbook. Only if you come maybe. on with me, Mike. <laughs> and guess what? I'm going to need you. I'm going to need you to finance it. Water. I'm going to need you to finance it. So <laughs> you can be my backer. Yeah, I'll throw in my three bucks. Yeah, and I'll teach you, you how to boil the water for the um, mac and cheese. There you go, Mike Leonard, Leonard Trial Lawyers, three one two three eight zero sixty five fifty nine. Leonard Trial Lawyers dot com. Mike, I believe we're talking again soon. We'll do it then. All right. John, thanks a lot. Enjoy the rest of the holiday weekend. Thanks for having me on. You too. We got a break. Then we're going to have Northwestern football after this on WGN.